Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From the start of the pandemic in 2020 to May of this year, the organization Stop AAPI Hate recorded more than 11,000 acts of hate against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. That number only represents those who chose to report. And since the U.S. has loosened its pandemic restrictions, politicians still single out China in both rhetoric and policy. That discrimination, however, is not a recent development. Back in 1882, the U.S. passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was one of the first major restrictions on immigration in United States history. The act barred Chinese laborers from coming to the U.S., and it prevented Chinese immigrants from becoming naturalized citizens. It was initially in place for just 10 years, but it was renewed multiple times, remaining in effect for 60 years. Even after it was repealed, Chinese immigration to the U.S. was limited by a quota system. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we take a look at the relationship between U.S. law and anti-Chinese racism and how that now extends to anti-Asian racism. Later, we hear from Professor Russell Jung, co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. We'll discuss the forms that anti-Chinese discrimination continues to take on today. But first, Ava Chen. She's professor of creative nonfiction and journalism at the City University of New York Graduate Center and the College of Staten Island. Her most recent book is Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Ava, welcome to Disrupted. Uh, It's so great to be here with you. Writing a memoir, I imagine, is always difficult, but especially when you're sort of telling a history, not just of family, but also of community, of space and place. Share with our listeners why telling the story of Mott Street and your family's connection to space was so important. So I always had this idea that there was a story here. But it took a really long time before I figured out what the framing of it was, right? So Mod Street is about the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws on four generations of my family. Um, I traced them as they came from the southern part of China, landed out in the American West, and then finally made their way out to a single tenement apartment building in the heart of the community on Mott Street. Um, It was only until I figured out that all roads led me to the Chinese Exclusion Act laws, which were the country's first immigration restrictions, and this particular building that meant so much to my family, both sides of my family lived in the same building as upstairs, downstairs neighbors from each other. They were a real community of people who were neighbors, um, friends. They sent their kids to the same schools. Uh, They eventually, sometimes within certain periods, they were rivals, they were enemies. Um, Eventually through my own birth, generations later, uh, we all become kin. 
Um, I didn't realize until I started doing the research that this story was a story not just about my family, but that the story was about something much larger that happened to the Chinese American community that most Americans don't know about. I also wonder, you said, you know, most Americans don't know about this story. I always wonder generationally, as our elders get older, as they transition, the generational effect of what happens when we don't tell the story or when we don't give the full context and history that was happening around us, happening to us, and how we move through that. As a person who, as you said, your generation kind of brought these things together, how important was it for you to be able to honor that history of family and experience and still think about where it shapes for you where you are at this moment in your own journey? It felt incredibly important for me personally to to really look at this history in the face um, and to to really reckon with it. There was a way that our history has really been erased or papered over. Um, people, even within the community, within my family, don't like to talk about um, those really difficult years under Chinese exclusion and the difficult years that 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 created Chinese exclusion in the first place. Um, the the book and, and all of this history goes back to a period in time during the era of reconstruction when the country was asking itself lots of questions, lots of difficult questions, including who is an American and who is not, who is one of us and who is not, right? And in that time period, it should have been a moment of great change for the country, but instead it became a moment of deep entrenchment. So what we see is politicians from the West Coast who are decidedly anti-Chinese, anti-Asian, working hand in hand with politicians in the South who are intent upon maintaining supremacy, and they work together to create this immigration restriction that was the most, um, it, it was the most restrictive immigration act that we had, and it lasted for over 60 years. And, and it had lasting impacts on our community even to today. So as an example, family members did not want to talk about how people were able to get into the country because the laws were so restrictive that they had to get in under false aliases. And they didn't want to talk about it for many reasons, a deep sense of shame, right? Um, also practical reasons, because you could, if you spilled the beans, you could get a family member deported, right? Um, so, so, these were things, these were secrets that were kept within families, but they were open secrets within people in the community, in the Chinese American community, in Chinatowns across the country. It was things that, it was an open secret, but we didn't like talking about it to outsiders because of the risks. Um, but I felt that it was personally important to talk about because we don't want to see these things happen to others. We don't want these things perpetuated in this country again. I want to get to this act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which, as you said, was started in 1882 and didn't go away until 1943. 
the remnants of that persist, the legacies of that exclusion of having an act that named a particular country of origin as barring its people from being able to come into the United States and really barring them from citizenship in a powerful way that I don't think we talk enough about. Walk us through some of the ways that that act, you know, based on your work, the things that you know from your own family experience, walk us through how that act, naming a community, becomes so central to the experiences of the community. Yeah. So so what happens when the laws are that restrictive, people find a way to come in because they're fleeing wars and famine. They want opportunities to, to, to feed their families back home, right? Um, and, and what ends up happening because of these laws um, number one, Chinese Americans are not, that first generation, are not allowed to become citizens. So they can't be, they can't professionalize. They can't become doctors. They can't become lawyers. They can't become judges. They cannot become politicians. They cannot vote out those laws that restricted us in the first place. So people are living uh, in a kind of precarious situation um, and and they're afraid to rock the boat, right? They're, they don't have access um, to equal representation, right? Um, politicians won't listen to them because the, there's no votes that they need to court, right? Um, so this puts the communities um, the community, the Chinese American communities across the country in a really precarious position. My family members wanted to come over and bring their wives and their children. It was often at the whim uh, and the discretion of an immigration official. Um, and, and many times women and, and family members and children were stuck in detention for, you know, upwards of a year. So it was really, really difficult, um, to, to get you know, to, to keep families together. There was a lot of family separation. This lasted for years. Um, my grandfather uh, was seven years old before he met his father, right? Chinese exclusion was such that it made it difficult for people to come in and out of the country because uh, you never knew what, if you left the country, if you left the U.S., if you would be allowed to come back in. Um, so Everybody was on this very precarious footing. Um, there were also immigration raids in Chinatown that happened um, where, you know, it's it's the toll, the toll of these raids really impacted people's day to day lives. You don't really ever feel 100 percent safe. You don't know if you can really set down roots here. Um, and it cast a veil of suspicion over, I would say, all Asian Americans, because what happens after the 1882 Exclusion Act is in place is we get future immigration restrictions against other nationalities that at the time, you know, the powers that be decided they didn't want to let those people in, like folks from Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, right? So, so it sets the tone for future immigration restrictions going forward against other people. And by 1917 and 1924, all Asians are excluded from coming over into the country, um, with the small exception of the Philippines. I often talk to my students about the Supreme Court case of U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark and what it meant 
that a child born on American soil had to have their citizenship questioned at the level of the Supreme Court to determine whether, in fact, citizenship could be passed on. We hear that today in current political debates of members of Congress saying we need to do away with birthright citizenship, not examining that history. Given what you said is that many of this were open secrets, that it was something that members of your family and your community didn't want to talk about because of that legacy of fear and uncertainty. How then do you tell those stories? Because they aren't stories of others. They are experiences that can be painful. How do you tell the story that brings together the history that is often untold with this is deeply personal? And what if I bring up things that people aren't willing or ready to address? Yeah, you know, it is such a good question. You really hit the nail on the head because working on this book, one of the greatest challenges was how do I put this all together? This this massive um, history told as a family saga, but told through the specific lens of different family members who witnessed and experienced and lived through all of these different iterations of exclusion. How do you bring that all together and, and then, then have myself, right, as your narrator, interjecting and, and learning and feeling all of these feelings. Um, there were so many moments where I felt socked in the stomach, where I was in an archive and I was reading, you know, materials that reflected a lot of the discrimination and prejudice of the day. And knowing that my family members were living in that era, in those towns, um, were, were, you know, subject to raids and pogroms, you know, uh, pushing out of Chinese people in their communities as they were living for many years. Um, and then the decisions about where do they go, right? Um, so all of these things were really important to me, as well as like bringing it up to today, right? What does this mean for us as Americans today, right? How do we, how do we reckon, you know, with this history that is so intertwined with the histories of other people, other people of color in this country, right? Um, and, and, but, but one of the things that really gave me a lot of hope when I was working on the book was I saw the ways that family members came together, they built coalitions with other folks um, in other communities, the Jewish diaspora, you know, the African-American um, diaspora, you know, up in Harlem, um, you know, ministers, Irish ministers who came out all together, they came out against exclusion, they spoke out against it. And those were moments that, we, you know, we, that's also a hidden history that people don't talk about, right? And and how important was that, that that happened then? Um, and also like giving us a vision of, you know, what our future can be, you know, how, how I mean, I have a, I have an 11 year old daughter. She knows about this history. And in fact, actually she's had to teach this history to her teachers 
because the teachers don't necessarily know the history either. So, so we're kind of all in this together, learning together, you know, having a dialogue with each other. And, and I think that is actually one of the best things about working on this book was, was the, the pleasure of, of bringing the message and, 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 you know, talking to other people about it. That was Ava Chen, author of Mod Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Coming up, Chen talks about the connection between Chinese exclusion and elections. And later, Russell Jung talks about discriminatory land laws in the past and now in the present. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about U.S. policies that discriminate against Chinese Americans. We now continue our conversation with Ava Chen, author of Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Ask Ava what writing the book taught her about herself. The first thing was it brought me closer to my family, both sides of my family, um, including the side of the family that I was estranged from, from since childhood, right? Um, I only knew my dad's side of my family once I became an adult and sought them out. But it was, it was through knowing them and asking questions and learning their stories that I realized that there was this larger story not just the story of our family, but stories of other families as they had to navigate this discriminatory legislation from the 19th century. And to be able to talk to my daughter about this, for her to understand the legacy of what it means to be Chinese in America, right? Um, the difficulties of that, but also, you know, the ways in which people gathered strength from community and being together. That really helped me a lot, particularly because, you know, I was writing most of the book down in Chinatown under the pandemic. And I saw the ways in which Chinatown was impacted. New York's Chinatown was impacted um, by the pandemic, folks being afraid to come down here. Um, it was in the wake of the last president's anti-Chinese rhetoric. I knew people who were attacked 
right? Um, we, you know, I was fearful for them. I was fearful for all of us. But the fact that my family in the 19th century were able to overcome these great obstacles, um, many of them similar to what we were seeing today, really gave me a lot of hope that, you know, we can persevere, right? But what's necessary is that we talk about these things and we don't brush them under the rug because it's too easy to. Because what happens, one of the things I noticed when doing the research for the book is that these iterations of exclusion, you know, the the wanting to um, tighten the Exclusion Act, wanting to perpetuate it, um, it was only supposed to last 10 years, um, but they kept renewing it every 10 years until they made it permanent. These iterations of exclusion came up during election years, um, you know, both the presidential election years as well as um, the midterms. So there's a way in which it's really easy for our politicians to, you know, uh, bang the drum of exclusion, not just against Chinese people, but against others, um, because it's easy for them. There's like a knee-jerk reaction that certain constituents have when they hear these things, right? But we need to do the right thing. We, so, so, so part of that is education and is learning and talking about our history. We are heading into another presidential election year, right? And I think about how ugly things were in 2020, not just because of the election, but in general, and how many Asian American communities weren't just overlooked, but really actively silenced as people mm -hmm. were talking about threats and challenges. As we head into that election cycle, thinking about the history of resistance, the history of community for Chinese communities, Chinese American communities, what do we take into this next season so that we say, look, we recognize what happened before. We cannot be complicit in allowing it to happen again. I have great trepidation and, and we're, we're already entering it. It's happening, right? And as we get closer and closer to it, you know, we have to look at the rhetoric um, and the language that our politicians are using and think about why they're using such rhetoric. Um, and I think that what's really important, too, is that it's easy for, you know, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, anybody within a particular community to just think about their community. Right. But it's really important to think about what are the ways in which we are interconnected. Right. Um, how did in this country, it's like really anywhere, but particularly in America, I feel like what happens to you impacts me and what happens to me impacts you, too. Right. Um, and I think it's just too easy for politicians to kind of use these wedges, easy knee-jerk wedges um, to keep communities apart. Um, I think the more dialogue we have with each other, the more we're, we're able to understand our, our moments of commonality in this country. Obviously we recognize the differences, but also we look at the ways in which we're interconnected. I think that's key. 
Thinking about the interconnected nature, right? Our fates are inextricably linked. Curious, have you been surprised by the reaction to your book? You know, the overwhelming reaction to it of touching people in many different spaces, many different communities who resonate with different pieces of your book. How have you reacted to the reaction? Well, you know, that really is one of the best parts. Um, folks who knew my family come up to me sometimes uh, after an event and they say, oh, you know, thank you for for making me feel seen, right? For, for you know, showing our stories, um, showing them to light. One of the things my um, grandfather, I had a grandfather who wanted to tell these stories. I very much felt like, I was picking up his mantle and trying to complete his work because he ran out of time, right? He actually passed away long before I was connected to my chin side of the family. And one of the things he really wanted was for people when they read the book to say, oh, that happened to their family. That happened to our family too, right? So part of the work of the book really was to try to, elevate our Asian American stories and put them in their proper space in the larger American context, right? Um, but then what was so great was that I also got folks, you know, from from various walks of life, right? Um, you know, who, you know, families immigrated over from the Dominican Republic or, you know, wherever, um, or who had roots in the American South, who said, I read your book and I was in tears. So I, I think part of it really was I was trying to tell the larger story of these immigration restrictions, of this, you know, discriminatory legislation that happened way back when, and show how it impacted people on the ground through the very personal lens of my family members. As you were talking about people reacting and saying, oh, I was in tears reading this book. I was one of those people because it allowed me to understand Asian American experiences in a different way. Even as someone who teaches about this, who thinks that I understand it, when you hear that personalized way of how policy can really nestle into families and communities over a span of generations, and then we connect to the language that we use, the the ways that we otherize communities without understanding that our fates are indeed connected. Given that, as we come to a close of our time, what is it that you want people to take away from your memoir, but also the broader experience that you uncover? I think I really want people to reflect upon the ways in which Decisions that were made all the way back in the 19th century, when our very young country was asking itself really important questions, and the ways in which, unfortunately, our politicians failed us, failed so many of us in the era of Reconstruction, right? I want us to take away, you know, the, the sense that this history is important, and unless we as Americans really look at that history with open eyes, we will not understand why it is that we are where we are today, 
right? And I think that it's through literature and it's through dialogue and it's through art that we can really understand the lived experience of people who don't necessarily look like us, right? That's that's really, I, I think, the great aim of this book, you know, is to also show, you know, my family We've been here since the building of the railroad. We've been here since it feels like practically forever. And so so it's important that I think we all recognize the contributions that Chinese Americans made to this country way back when and how and how it 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 united the country physically after the Civil War um, and, and what that means for us today. That was Ava Chen, professor of creative nonfiction and journalism at the City University of New York Graduate Center and College of Staten Island. Her most recent book is Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Coming up, Russell Jung talks about the history of organizing and civil disobedience in Asian-American communities. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at anti-Chinese racism in the U.S. As we heard from Ava Chen, there's a long history of discriminatory laws that target Chinese Americans, and some of those laws are still passed today. In Florida, legislators passed a law that restricts property ownership for people from certain countries who are not U.S. citizens. The law singles out China in particular, and it bans people who live in China but aren't U.S. citizens or permanent residents from purchasing property. Here to talk more about recent anti-Asian discrimination is Russell Jung. He's professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. In 2021, he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, and he shared that honor with his fellow co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate. Russell, welcome to Disrupted. I'm glad to be here, Claudia. So congratulations on being named one of the 100 Most Influential But really, the accolade is congratulations for the important work that you and your co-founders have been doing to really lift up this issue of the many ways in which Asian Americans are targeted and harmed across the United States, not just now, but also historically. Share with our listeners the founding of that organization and why you thought it was necessary and important to create it. Well, when I heard about COVID-19 coming from China, I was pretty alarmed because I know Asian American history. Whenever diseases came from Asia and became epidemics in the U.S., Asians were then blamed for those diseases, and they faced both personal violence and institutional policies um, that harmed them. It occurred with uh, the bubonic plague, it occurred with smallpox, and most recently with SARS in 2003. So I began to track incidents of discrimination in media accounts. And there was a clear rise, um, not only in the U.S., but globally. And so to hold government accountable, I knew we needed to document the issue and to really get firsthand accounts of what was happening. And so we created a website in um, multiple languages to collect stories of hate and racism. And sure enough, within the first week, we gathered hundreds daily. Um, They were just horrifying. They're across the nation. 
And they just revealed the extent of the racism um, that just sort of blew up against Asian Americans. It was the same time President Trump began to use the term Chinese virus. It means something when the president of the United States sanctions, encourages, and really justifies that kind of harm. And the many ways that I remember, Asian Americans were somewhat silenced because media wasn't talking about it in the comprehensive way that you and others were able to collect these experiences and show that this is not a one-off episodic occurrence. This is happening across the United States in damaging ways. Is there a particular story or experience that stands out to you that makes you say, this is why we need to focus on this in a holistic way and not just a single experience of a particular person? We knew it wasn't just a case of a few individual prejudiced people, that the racism was widespread, that it was institutionalized, that it came from the top, like you said. And when leaders Um, make comments and actually intentionally use terms like Chinese virus that like, as you said, legitimated racism from the general pop. The term Chinese virus really did two things. It racialized the virus. It took a biological virus and made it Chinese. And then it stigmatized the people. So that association that the virus is Chinese, that Chinese people have the virus really became part of people's implicit bias. It became their schema for COVID-19. And so when people came across Asians, um, they were triggered, they were already fearful of COVID, but then that association led to a fight or flight response. They were attacking us or they were actively shunning us. So it wasn't just a case of a few individuals. It was um, a clear sort of purposeful targeting of a community to outgroup them, to blame them and scape them, maybe to mask the government's inability to handle the pandemic. And that scapegoating then just led to widespread violence. One of the cases, well, we've had thousands of cases, clearly the the killings of our elderly, the Atlanta shootings. But I just remember people taking the time to stalk an elderly couple pushing a baby cart. And who attacks babies and elders, right? I I remember we saw so many cases of people spitting on Asians. My own wife got coughed on um, that we actually made it a special checkoff category so that people could easily report someone spat on me and told me to go back to effing China. Uh, So it clearly was fear-driven. It was clearly um, part already of America's racial subconscious that was just resurrected easily by politicians. It clearly was exacerbated by the president's comments. What I'm also struck by, Russell, is this organization, this effort is called Stop AAPI Hate. Because one of the things that we know historically as well is this tendency in the United States to lump groups together, to not recognize the intra-group differences and how the broad-based targeting and violence toward a group as a whole then mask those differences, but also invokes this fear that you're hearing from the highest office that this is a virus that was produced in China or that is something that is endemic in this way to a particular community. And it doesn't recognize how people are misidentified, are targeted in ways that are really detrimental to the sense of safety for all Asian Americans. 
Why is it important for us to think about that in that sort of umbrella pan-ethnic way to say, regardless of country of origin, regardless of family experience, this targeting, this institutionalized targeting that we've seen historically really undermines the sense of security and in some sense, citizenship for Asian Americans. Yeah, you're right. This um, targeting, not just of Chinese, but Asians overall, is again, part of the historical pattern where um, the West really can't distinguish between um, countries in the East where the West um, conflates um, individuals from a nation with the government of that nation so that every Chinese citizen is seen to be an agent of the Communist Party. Um, it was a clear case of racial profiling, and it has been. Um, even though people blame COVID-19, over half of the respondents to stop AAPI hate are non-Chinese. So they're mostly East Asians, um, who are, look similar to Chinese, um, Koreans, Vietnamese, but a Latino was attacked in LA and told to go back to China. An indigenous person in Vancouver was attacked and told to go back to China. So it's, if you simply look Asian, um, then you could be attacked. And that's why I call this period one of collective racial trauma. It's collective because one out of five of us have experienced this type of racism. That's 5 million cases of hate. It's racial because, again, it's simply by the way we look that people are attacking us. And these cases, even if it's just harassment and not a hate crime, cases of um, harassment, cases of getting spat upon, cases of getting your place vandalized, they're all traumatizing. And so a high percentage of the Asian American community show signs of trauma, long-term symptoms of anger, of anxiety, of hypervigilance. And so there's been over 50 peer-reviewed journal reports now, research that demonstrates the impact of racism on the Asian American community and our mental health. I'm thinking here, Russell, about the case of, of Vincent Chin. I teach a class on ethnic politics. And I talked to my students about this case of Vincent Chin, young man in Detroit who was beaten to death because two auto workers blamed him and quote unquote, people like him for layoffs in the auto industry. And the ways in which that helped us to see that this is really a deep seated sense of anger and hate that can manifest across communities and put everyone at risk. There are other institutional policy-based ways in which Asian Americans become targeted or harmed by this. And so I want to direct our listeners, you wrote an opinion piece for USA Today earlier this year, and this is one of the pieces that really stood out. The real threat to America is not international competition, but our own racism and history of scapegoating. You're talking in that piece about restrictive property ownership policies, that are really part of that endemic historical piece of how we control. How does that shape where we are today and the need to see the ways in which Asian Americans, Chinese Americans are being targeted and really scapegoated for this other so-called fear that people have? In the past, um, based on the constitution and um, immigration acts, Asians were designated aliens ineligible for citizenship. We were officially categorized as not being able to naturalize too foreign to become American. And then laws were passed 
focusing on aliens and eligibles for citizenship. Um, so Chinese, Japanese, um, Indians couldn't become citizens. And then later alien land laws um, prohibited us from buying property. So they used the category as aliens and eligible for citizenship as a means to group people and to prohibit them from um, owning land, from being able to go to a school, and then maybe barring them from future immigration. So um, officially designated as aliens, Asians are now seen as perpetual foreigners. We're sort of um, stereotyped as opposite the West, inassimilable. In the past, we were seen as heathen, pagans. And so that foreigner racialization, that Asians don't belong here, that we can't fit in, that we're too dangerous and threatening, that we're actually invasive, like like invasive plants. Um, those stereotypes continue today and still undergird a lot of structural policies um, about um, who could get deported, about who can um, be detained without due process, and now increasingly, again, who could buy land. And um, history is repeating itself. And across the United States, there are ins institutional official sanction to car target certain populations, um, broadly aliens, um, to discriminate against them and to harm them. I wonder, Russell, as someone who, I believe, fifth generation in the United States mm -hmm. has seen the experiences of elders in your family, in your community. How do you move through this space of, I'm a scholar who has a scholarly approach to understanding these dynamics, and also as someone who has seen firsthand what happens when you are categorized as other or as a perpetual foreigner, as you know, sort of the, the literature says, how do you reconcile those two spaces? I don't reconcile those two spaces in both um, sites as an academic and just as an American citizen who's fifth generation. As a family member, I'm traumatized too. You know, those of us who don't experience racism directly, we experience it vicariously. If I see an elderly attacked in the news, I can't help but think about my elderly mother. If I see a kid racially bullied, spat upon, I can't help but think about my kid. And so as a scholar, I know the long history of racism against Asian Americans. I know that each ethnic group has seen as alien and faced exclusion. But as an individual, um, I've had family members, again, shunned or coughed upon. I have friends who, who've been um, attacked and are now fearful of standing on subway platforms or um, walking in certain neighborhoods. So currently, um, one out of two Asian Americans feel so unsafe because of their race, right? That shouldn't be the norm, that half of our community is unsafe in the nation that they're born in, at the nation where they pay taxes, the nation where they work and serve. And so this racism has clear impacts and, um, you know, influences us on an individual level. And then on, again, on a community level, um, this sense of disenfranchisement, this sense of exclusion. Um, Asian Americans surveys show are the racial group 
who feel the least belonging and acceptance in the U.S. And it's because of this racism. Again, we're the racial group that's pretty similar to the levels of African-Americans and Latinx communities who feel um, a lack of belonging as compared to whites, of course. I appreciate you for naming that because I think there's often this misperception and myth that some people have been able to escape this trauma and this experience. And it's a, a very important point that when something is a collective experience or a collective sense of uncertainty and threat, no one is immune from that. And it mm -hmm. means then that it's even more important and significant that people don't feel this sense of belonging. It also, I think, Russell, is important to point out that often there's also a misperception that Asian Americans just sort of suffer in silence, that they haven't fought back, that they haven't resisted and affirmed their place in community. And it couldn't be further from the truth, not just the, the creation of Stop AAPI Hate, but a longer tradition of communities organizing and saying, this is not right and we won't accept it. Share with us a little bit about that tradition as well of communities organizing in resistance and really an affirmation of their standing as well. Well, because I know Asian American history, um, I know that we've long faced racism, but I also know that we have a history of resistance, a history of community organizing to um, challenge what's unfair, to um, seek justice, not just for our own community, but for all. So during the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, um, Chinese filed tens of thousands of lawsuits against the legality of making them hold alien registration cards. Um, when over 100,000 Chinese didn't carry the alien card like they were supposed to, they engaged in mass civil disobedience. When Japanese, again, faced incarceration during World War II, there were lawsuits, um, they fought for reparations and won. And when South Asians, Muslims, Arab Americans faced um, detention and deportation after 9-11, they too organized. And now you see a lot of South Asians being elected. So we've long had a history of resistance. And you spoke about Vincent Chin and his killing um, in the 1980s and how a pan-Asian movement started from that. So we learned from the experience of those who um, fought for justice for Vincent Chin We've gained from the expertise of those who fought against Islamophobia after 9-11. And so those are the leaders of um, the movement today, um, drawing from their organizing experience, drawing from their knowledge of how we have to fight institutionalized racism. And um, so I think we've built a lot of the movement learning from the past and recognizing that we need solidarity, that we need allies that we need to use media and social media in um, strategic ways, and that we have to actually change the narrative about um, Asian Americans standing in the United States and who really belongs in the United States. What is one thing that you would say to our listeners, or people who are hearing this conversation and thinking, what can I do in this space, how can people stand up to affirm, yes, this history exists, and if we don't pay attention to it, it will continue? What's a takeaway action that you would give to our listeners? So I'll give you two takeaway actions. Um, and again, they're both um, political actions. Most people agree that the best way to combat racism is to educate our community, especially our young people. 
And so we need things like um, Asian American studies at the K through 12 level. We need African American studies at the K through 12 level so that people could understand how racism has impacted us, how our students need to develop racial empathy, critical thinking, cultural competency. So there's been a huge movement among the Asian American community to legislate and to um, get um, curriculum standards to include Asian American history, Asian American literature. And so I think, you know, Connecticut has a great piece of legislation to require that. And I think um, parents and students and community members could really stand up to make sure that our education um, really addresses the root issues uh, um, and foundational issues that we're dealing with. I just heard a great quote where it says, um, the history we're taught doesn't show us how we got to the place where, where we're at. And I thought that's so true. You know, you get the standard history about America's founding, but you don't understand why is there so much racism? Why is there climate injustices? Why is there so much gun violence? And so the critical issues that our communities are facing aren't really understood by our young people. Um, and I think we need to teach that. Yeah, secondly, you know, again, there's just been a surge of alien land laws um, being proposed at the state level and federal level, and they're going to have um, clear discriminatory impact. And I think we need to challenge those too. So our community as voters need to use um, their enfranchisement and um, challenge politicians who use xenophobia and racism um, to mobilize their base. Thank you for all that you're doing to remind us of that history, but also to remind us of what we can do to really impact the future. Russell Jung is professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and a co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. And a special note to our listeners, why don't you meet me and several other Connecticut public talk show hosts at Aquila's Nest Vineyard in Newtown on Wednesday, September 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. Come share what topics you think we should tackle on Disrupted. Visit ctpublic.org slash vineyard to purchase your tickets. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.